0: Well, good morning everyone. We're going to get started here, so let us let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, we're so grateful that you are in the heavens above all things and that we can look to you as the sovereign God who knows all things, who is infinitely wise, um, who controls and ordains all things. And Lord, we know that you have us in your hands, that we are your people, and you are our God, and we thank you. Lord, we know that you have been so kind to us to give us your word, and we know that it is your word that is truth and that sanctifies us. And I ask that this morning as we continue to think about the covenant relationships that you have given to us and called us to, I pray that you would give us clarity of mind in um, thinking these things through, and, and that as we think about the implications of these things for us as a church, that you would help us to take hold and to live these things out faithfully before you. Lord, we trust you, and we depend on you, and we seek your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we have been working through this idea that God relates to his people in covenant, and that that covenant relationship Is really grounded in his own, his own being, and his own, uh, the reality of his covenant relationship within the Godhead. So we began talking about the covenant of redemption, which is the. We'll we'll see this again even this morning as we talk about Christ having an elect people. The, The scriptures are very clear. Jesus in his uh, prayer in John 17 is clear, as he is, as he has been, as he will be, that God has given to him a people and that he came to save those people. And so, we, we, as we talked about before, we, we conclude from that that from eternity there was this covenant within the Godhead whereby the Father gave the Son a people The Son promised to redeem that people and the Holy Spirit was promised and involved in the carrying out of the work that would be required. And so that uh, understanding this helps us to, to understand that our salvation from beginning to end is a Trinitarian thing. It is a Trinitarian salvation. God, in his whole being, is involved in your salvation, which ought to give us tremendous hope and ought to give us tremendous security. But then, in his creation of the world, he, he entered into covenant with humanity, with creation, and that covenant was a covenant of works whereby um, Adam and Eve would need to, re, uh, to fulfill the law he had given to them perfectly, and we know they broke that covenant, and so the Lord, uh, in mercy and in grace, um, instituted his covenant of grace and that is played out then through all of the rest of scripture and most clearly manifested in the new covenant the covenant um, inaugurated by christ but then because we relate to the lord in covenant um, he also intends for us to relate to one another in covenant and so uh, roger spent the last two weeks talking first about the covenant of uh, marriage covenant that that then pushes into the covenant to the family, and this morning we're going to be talking about the local church and the covenant relationship we have amongst ourselves here in the church. Now, some of this will be review if you've um, gone through the membership class uh, relatively recently. Within the, uh, when I say relatively recently, I mean within the last several years. Uh, <laughs> So um, this has been something that I have been teaching for a number of years in our membership class. We went through this again as a class. We went through part of this um, when I taught through the membership class in this setting. But uh, I wish I knew who said the the, the statement, because I say it a lot, but I don't know who I attribute the quote to. But um, spaced repetition is good. So it's just good, right? Because the scriptures always say, remember... Uh, I'm reminding you. Remember, um, we're forgetful people, and we need to be reminded. Um, I was reminded of many things when I was away at the conference down in Lafayette. Um, there were many things that were not new, but were very useful to me because they were reminders, and you kind of go, "Oh, yeah, that's right." And so we need that. So. This will be somewhat review if, you, if you've been through Then it'll also be, it'll have some overlap with what we've been talking about. So I, before we jump into this uh, local church covenant relationship we have with one another, I want to just briefly talk about the universal church and the local church, and I want to make a distinction between these. I think it's really important for us to understand this. So there is a universal church, and there is the local church, and the Scripture speaks of both. And it's helpful for us to understand these distinctions so we don't get confused. So the universal church, I've given you a definition there. The universal church is the community of all true believers everywhere and for all time. So the universal church is the community or the people, this this gathering together of all true believers everywhere for all time. Now for all time, that means that the universal church includes all of those saints who have preceded us, all of those true believers who came before us in the, the, the millennia preceding us, right? And so, um, but, that, but it, the universal church is also the church everywhere. So there are true believers living right now in Zambia and in Ethiopia and in uh, Indonesia and China and um, Germany and Ecuador, etc., right? And they are all part of the universal church. And in one sense, in a very real sense, you and I, The things that you are commanded to do in reference to the church that you cannot do with the universal church? Eat together. You can't eat together. Encourage one another. You can't encourage one another. Yeah. Where am I supposed to attend the service for the universal church? Right. <laughs> Where is this universal church service? The gathering. You can't have communion with that. Can't bear with that. Can't bear with that. And now think about this, because this is real or this is true. In uh, two, he wins. Number one, it is true because I, listen. I know the population has really grown, and so I don't know if this is true because I don't. I don't know the statistics, but I imagine that there are more true Christians who are dead than there are alive. Right. Well. I mean, should you pray for dead Christians? No. But you are commanded to pray, right? So there is this very real way in which you cannot participate with the universal church, right? Now, I would say it this way. We are to anticipate the universal church. We're to understand it and anticipate it. Because there is coming a day when we will be together in fellowship with the universal church, right? And we will spend all of eternity singing together and worshiping together and and being together, gathering together as one people, right? We anticipate that. So we can't, for this reason, we have to be careful not to overblow the importance of the universal church. The universal church is important, but... It's important as a theological concept. It's important for thinking about the history and the future. But for right now, it, it doesn't have... Uh, it, you and I cannot practically experience it. Now We can get tastes of it and praise God. Like when uh, I was a number of years ago down in Louisville, I went to a conference down there, a pastor's conference, and there were 7,000 men gathered together, and we were singing hymns together. Wow, that was just amazing, right? That is this really tiny t- taste of what it'll be, right? You think, well, oh, it's the universal church there. Yeah, 7,000, what percentage of that would, would that be of the uh, actual universal church when we gather? You know, almost inconsequential. You, so you understand you can't really experience or engage with the universal church. So that means that you you do need to engage with the church. Yes? I was going to say, thinking of the universal church is a humbling experience for us who are in the local church. Yes. And not the fact that we aren't the only ones. Yeah. Steve said that thinking of the universal church is a humbling thing for us especially as we think about the fact that we're not the only ones. So, what are ways in which people overemphasize? so that's a great question. What are ways in which people overemphasize the universal church? Well, when, when we devalue the, the need to be a part of a local church, a member of a local church, with the argument that, well, I mean, we're all part of the universal church, so it doesn't really matter whether I'm a member of this church or that church because we're all part of the universal church, right? Or when a person has a tendency to kind of bounce from here to there and not really understanding a commitment to a local church. Or when we, when we run ministries apart from and outside of authority or under the authority of a local church when we're thinking, well, there's this universal church, and so we can have this this mission or this organization or this work apart from and out from underneath a local church. Even the Apostle Paul and Barnabas were sent by a local church. They were sent by the church in Antioch and returned to Antioch to give a report. So even the apostles were under the authority of, in one sense, of a local church or felt it uh, important to be a part of a local church. Okay, let's talk about the local church then, right? Um, well, everybody agrees the local church exists. Here's a definition for you. The local church is a community of Christians who regular, regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and shepherd one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances or sacraments. <coughs> the local church is a community of Christians, right? So the church is made up of believers, and those believers regularly gather, do not neglect the gathering together of the saints, as do some, as do others, and We do this in Christ's name. In other words, we do it under his authority, with his word, in his intended ways, in his order. And we do it to, uh, and we officially affirm membership in Christ, and we officially shepherd one another in membership in Christ and his kingdom. And we do that through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. So, let's, uh, let's, we'll, we'll press into that definition a little bit as we work through our outline this morning. Let's go on to, to number two here. So, are members of a local church in covenant relationship with one another? So that's the question we want to address. Are members of a local church in covenant relationship with one another? Now, there's another way to ask this question. Should people in a local church be members and i would understand membership and covenant belonging really to be intimately connected and you think about this in this way is it right to say that you are a member of christ's body yeah right i mean the bible says that right and is it a right is it true to say that you're a member of the church yes right okay when when the scriptures tell you that you are a member of Christ's body do you see how that's uh inherently a covenantal statement so when it says that you are in him you are in him how by way of covenant right He purchased you with his blood, the blood of his covenant. He took you out from this place where you were not his people, and by his redeeming work, he took you and he put you into himself to be his people. That's covenant. So, to say that you are a member of the body of Christ is to say that you are in covenant relationship with him. So... If we make the case that you ought to be in covenant relationship with one another, it also makes the case that you ought to be a member of one another. Now, membership is practiced in different ways, and we're not arguing that our way of practicing membership in terms of the the way we do it is prescribed to us from Scripture. We're trying to be faithful to the broader understanding that we ought to be members of one another and that we ought to acknowledge that officially. Right? Yeah, so she's, the question she's asking is that a friend had, had said that uh, because we're covenantally bound in the universal church, we, we don't need to be or maybe even shouldn't be covenantally bound in a local church. I think as we work through this, we'll address this. We'll answer that question and answer those object, that objection and maybe other objections as well. Listen, I, I, I'll confess here. So Tammy and I were living in in, um, Colorado Springs. We became a part of a church plant. It was very relatively new. And I ended up um, in leadership helping to to plant this church. And um, at the time, you know, the question of membership came up because it was a new church. And I had this view similar to what uh, Liz was just saying where, listen, we're all members of the universal church, so... Membership in the local church is really not that important. What's most important is that we understand that we're members of the universal church. And so we, we had membership, but we didn't really practice it. And so it, it, was, it was a result of God's grace and his mercy to me and some good instruction that I was brought to a, a recognition I was wrong. I, I, I was wrong. And um, honestly, if I look back on, on those years, I think there's a way in which I was kind of like a doctor who hadn't taken anatomy. <laughs> the Lord was using me and He was faithful, but uh, as has been said many times, the Lord draws straight lines with crooked sticks. And I, I was pretty crooked in my thinking about the church. But, uh, and listen, there are still ways in which I know I'm crooked, <laughs> but. Lord is still drawing straight straight lines. Okay, so let's look at our definition. And this covenant union with or this covenant bond with one another is implicit or assumed in the definition of this local church. So it says officially affirm one another another's membership in Jesus Christ. So here is the universal aspect, right? You are the you are a member. Of Christ, you are a member of His covenant community. You are a, you're a citizen of His kingdom. Who affirms that? Who, who does the Lord intend to affirm that? Now, let me ask you the question: How do we affirm it? What is the most, uh, most profound way that we affirm that? Baptism. Who? Baptizes. The, the local church, right? Now, let me ask you this question. Can the universal church baptize anyone? I mean, that doesn't even make sense, right? So somehow people who have been dead for 1,500 years are going to be involved in my baptism? Right? People living in Ethiopia right now? are to be involved, and they're to affirm me in baptism? This is an official act, isn't it? By official, what I mean is it's something that the Lord King, Jesus Christ the Lord, has told us to do, right? And he's laid it out for us in the Scriptures. So it's official, right? There's structure to it. He's ordained it, Right? So we officially do this in the sense that we are doing this under the authority of Christ given to us in his word, right? And we affirm one another, but we can't do that from a universal standpoint. The local church is the only entity that God has given to do that. The church, local church, has to be, is who affirms our membership in the Christ. Now, for those who come to us, who are already baptized, how do we then affirm, and should, should we affirm that they're a member in the, in the universal church? So should we here at Cornerstone, when someone comes to us from the outside, should we affirm that they're a member of the body of Christ? Yes. Yeah, right? Because, I mean, otherwise, take, take uh, people that help lead here. Would it be important for us as a a church to to know their standing as they represent us and help us worship? Wouldn't it be important for us to know their relationship with Christ? Wouldn't it be important for us to know, like elders and deacons and and others who serve? Well, how are we going to do that? We need to do it by officially affirming their membership in the body of Christ, and we do that through membership. We do that through the way we bring about or do membership. Does that make sense? Now, we're also officially shepherding one another in our membership in Jesus Christ. Now, we're doing that with gospel preaching. Now, preaching is the broad term here for just the proclamation of the gospel. We do that from the pulpit. We do that here. We do that in one-on-one relationships with one another. But it is the gospel that we are using to shepherd one another that we're using to care for one another. And now we do that officially because it's all under the order and structure that Christ has given us in the church. And it ought not to be out from underneath the church. Okay. So we assume these things in our definition there. Secondly, the biblical terms or the imagery used to describe local church members strongly suggests that this is a covenant relationship. So, for example, family. Uh, we are children of God, right? John 1, 12. All of those who believe have been given the right to be children of God. You have been Adopted into Christ's family, and what do we call one another? Sisters. Brothers and sisters, right? In fact, there's so many examples of brothers and sisters in the Scripture that we'd it'd be, it'd be we couldn't get to, we couldn't get to them all. Certainly not this morning, right? We are. I'm, I'm your brother, okay? So, doesn't that say I'm I'm family with you? Which means. Because we've already established that family is covenantal, that means we're in covenant, relationship with one another. Union. Turn to Romans chapter 12. Union or oneness. Romans chapter 12. If we had time, we'd look more at this passage and and then also 1 Corinthians 12. But we're just going to look at a couple of things real quickly here. So picking it up at verse 4. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. We're members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, of prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, in service, in his serving, in teaching, in his teaching, and so on. Okay. So let me ask you this question. To whom is Paul writing? The church in Rome. Right? Now, we could jump ahead to 1 Corinthians 12 where Paul says very similar things, right? Talking about the body of Christ. To whom was Paul writing in 1 Corinthians? Church. To the church of Corinth. And by the way, coming back to universal church, think of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and did what? Gave his life for her. Now, which Is is what is what church is Christ thinking of or speaking of there? Has to be the universal church, right? Okay, but when Paul writes the Corinthians, says to the church of God at Corinth, who is he referring to? That local church, right? But notice the way he says it to the church, singular, to the church of God in Corinth. He doesn't say to part of the church in Corinth. He says, to the church in Corinth. In other words, he considers Corinth to be a whole church. And and this is the terminology that he uses when he talks about the church, the local church, the church in Thessalonica, the church. If he were here to Paul, were here today writing to us, he would say, to the church cornerstone. Because we have everything we need here to be the church. And In this church, he's given to us gifts, people with gifts, right? Can you use the gift that God has given to you in the universal church? Yeah, yeah, so like, yeah, but like, like your, your use of your gift in the, in the universal church is so infinitesimally small as really to be almost inconsequential. Now, I'm not saying it's not important. I'm just saying that if you contemplate your use of the gift, how many Christians are dead? Can you use your gift with them? I don't think so. Right? So practically speaking, with whom will you use your gift? Now, think about that also. Think of the the terminology here there is this union that he connects to body, right? Body. So he describes us as body parts. So imagine if I said, I'm not going to be covenantally committed to any one church. I think that would be wrong. I'm covenantally committed to the universal church. Remember, by covenant, what I'm saying is, I am officially committing myself to duty with the other party, right? So I... Okay, so I'm officially covenanting or committing myself, promising, making vows with signs to fulfill my duties to the universal church. And so the way I do that is I I just say, well, you know, on Sunday morning I'm going to wake up and I'm going to pray and the Lord's going to tell me which local church to go to that morning. And I'm going to go and I'm going to use my gifts there. Imagine if we all did that. So would that work? from a practical standpoint would that work It's like so you have five people over here and five people over here and they all go like or or maybe you know like three just like this would be now now think about this you're you're the you're the finger and and I'm the pinky or you're the index and I'm the pinky right and so on one Sunday you go over there and I go over there What kind of body will you end up with? Frankenstein? Yeah, Frankenstein. Right? It'll be really messed up and ugly. Yes? It'd be spiritual atrial (laughs) fib. Spiritual atrial (laughs) fib? Like in. No, the heart just starts randomly. Right. Yeah, the heart just starts. Yeah, we would just be like, there would be no order to this, would there? Part of saying that I'm in covenant bond with a people is to say that I am committing to you to to fulfill duties and promises, and amongst those would be the use of the gifts that God has given to me in the context of that community. And I don't know how you can do it any other way. So the imagery, the ideas, the, the concepts that the Lord is giving to us in terms of the church are they're inherently fun. They're, they're inherently covenantal. So they re, they refer to union. Turn, uh, turn to Galatians chapter three. To whom was Paul writing this letter? The churches of Galatia. Right now. The reason he says the churches of Galatia is because Galatia was a region. It wasn't a town or city. It was a region, and there were churches in that region. And he was writing to those churches. So universal churches or local churches? Right, right. Universal churches or local? (laughs) Local churches, right? So he's speaking to churches, local churches here. And he says in chapter 3, verse 29, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. So the way he's describing their relationship is that they belong to Christ and by implication belong to one another, right? So there is belonging here. And so uh, there's other belonging terminology. But turn to John chapter... Well, let's turn to Romans. Let's go back to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And let's look at specifically at, let's look at, pick it up at verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Okay, now, let me, let me ask the question again. Who's he writing to? The church in Rome, right? And what's he telling them? Love one another, right? be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Again, can you fulfill that command in reference to the universal church? Can you be devoted in brotherly love to someone who's been dead for 1,500 years? <coughs> I, okay, so like in one sense, I can like think of them and... but on any practical level, could you, could you display or or be devoted to that love? I, I think most of us, when we think about the universal church, we don't even, we're not even thinking about those that have gone before us. Right. We are all, I, I, I mean, I confess that typically when I think of the universal church, I know this definition, I know that to be true, but I'm thinking those believers across town or yes. across yeah. I think that's a really good point. So what Tammy is saying is that when we typically think of the universal church, we're not thinking of the universal church. <laughs> we're thinking of something more akin to like a, a like a regional church. Or what we don't probably have in mind or haven't been conditioned to be thinking about those who are dead. When we think of universal church, we tend to think here and now, we might think of the churches across town and we might, Or we might think of the churches in a different country, but we're tending to think of the, the church that's alive right now. What I'm saying to you, what we've been saying, and we have to we have to change this, the universal church is all of the church, which means it includes those who are dead. And so the, the point I'm making is if we are saying that our commitment is to the local church, our covenant is, I'm sorry, our commitment is to the universal church. Our covenant is with the universal church. There, the overwhelming majority of commands and, and exhortations given to you in reference to the church, you can't fulfill. You can't do. You, you cannot, should not pray for the dead. So how, how can we then say, that our commitment our covenant union is to the local, to the universal church again that's in that's true in part it's but it's true from an, from a comprehensive and from a future reality sense not from a practical right here right now sense Tell the, is the universal church they still in the future to come right yeah know? exactly good point because we often i don't even think about that thank you i'm not even thinking about the church to come now, in one sense, we can pray for them, but it's going to be hard to bear with them, right? Or forgive them. So just to clarify, like, if I'm throwing a party, would it be more valuable to only invite the local church and disclude believers leaders of party that I know? Or, is, like, does the Bible speak on that element? Of yeah, the question is, if I'm throwing a party, should I keep it only to my local church? And not include others. No, that's not the implication here. The the, but that there are specific covenant duties that are involved in what it means to be a part of the church that you fulfill with your local church, and, and you're not you're not when you become a, a member of a congregation and covenant with them, you're not covenanting to throw birthday parties for them, right? And you're you're, in fact, and there's nothing wrong with getting together and praying together. Celebrating, singing together. I was, as I said earlier, I was together in in Louisville with seven thousand pastors. That's an, that's a beautiful thing to do. But what I'm saying is that I ought not to look at that and say, "Oh, that's it. I'm, I'm done." The scriptures make clear that no, you're to be engaged in a local church and to be a member covenantally bound to a local church, and that's where you primarily fulfill the duties given to you. Because that's the way you can actually experience and the way God intended for you to experience his covenant community. We have a local church in which to, to perform these commands, you know, to act out you know, with one another in this way. But that doesn't preclude us from showing that toward all those who are in Christ. Exactly. Yes, that's good. It Yes. Yes. So absolutely. So we are commanded specifically to fulfill these duties within the context of the local church. But that's not to say that I ought not to be doing these things to all of my brothers that I know, all of my sisters that I know. But that relationship, my relationship with a brother who's in, um, that I happen to meet somewhere who's from Ecuador, I, I'm going to love him. And I may pray with him and, and, and care for him in the, in the time that I'm with him, but I'm not covenantally bound in the same way. I don't have covenant duties with him. I can't, I can't, uh, be, I can't be with him through discipline. I can't, uh, yeah, so there's ways, we, uh, yeah, absolutely. We, we live out these loving relationships with everyone, but there's a specific covenantal bond to the local church. Now, so these things are described as family, as union, as belonging, and then commitment to one another. We are committed to one another. Uh, turn One second. Turn to Galatians chapter 6, just for one more example here. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 first. Brethren, notice the covenantal language, the family language. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one look into yourself that, so that you too will not be tempted. So what is, the, what is uh, Paul referring to here? What process? Church discipline, right? He's, he's referring to Matthew 18. So Jesus says, if you see your brother in sin, go to him. Paul says, if, if your brother is caught in any trespass, go to him and restore such one. Bear, with one. bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Do you see how that can only be practiced and commanded within the context of a local covenant church? You don't discipline. We don't have any duty to discipline people, and it wouldn't make sense to discipline to go through that process with someone at Kearney Efree. So I'll just verify. So, so I would be out of place if I have a, a brother from another church who I've known for years and we have a really good friendship. If I see him backsliding, falling away to go to, to basically have that hard part and talk to him and help restore that brother, that's not my place to do that because I'm not part of his church. So well, no, yes and no. So you are a brother in Christ, and so if you see your brother sinning, you would love him well to go and seek for his restoration, but you can't follow that through. You're not in the kind of relationship with him, so you would be encouraging him, but you would be encouraging him, and if he, if he didn't listen to you, you really don't have a mechanism now to go and, and do more. Now, you might talk to his church. You might encourage them. And but but your duty—that's what we're talking about here. Your duty to follow through—you don't you don't have it because you're not in specific covenant relationship. So there are jurisdictional boundaries. Right, there are jurisdictional boundaries within the church, and we all know this to be true because you all know that you don't submit to Adrian Boykin, right? Adrian is the pastor at Carney Free. He's a brother, right? Love Adrian. He's but you but you don't say well. We have to listen to Adrian. Why? Why don't you? Because you're not in a covenant relationship with him. You don't listen to Mitch Ivey. I mean, it's not like you don't hear. If, like if, if you're having coffee with them and they say something to you that's encouraging, that you listen and go, praise God. But you're not under their authority. We know that. Yeah, that's a great question. Question Dan asked is what we would do. What would we do if someone came to our congregation who had been disciplined by another church? Actually, this is something, praise God, that our area pastors have worked through together. And we've discussed this and we have a kind of a a commitment amongst one another that when that person comes here, that we're going to engage with that person and then we're going to do what we can to get that person back to their church so that they can reconcile. And we're going to, we're going to Lead them, help them, take them back if we can. Yeah, yes, and that's it's maybe a deviation from yeah. where we're going, but I just for sake like of clarity, like Yeah, the question is if somebody's doing something illegal and I know that they're doing something like beating their wife, do I have an obligation to yeah. report them to authority? Yeah. That'll be yes, and, and we'll actually address that next week when we talk about our covenant bond with one another as a nation. Okay. So we're under law and we're under authority and we've been we need to submit to authority and and that's now it would it would also be right to do just from a practical standpoint, loving standpoint. Okay. So we're committed to one another. We are described to be a people, a race, a nation, a body, a temple, a house, a marriage. And all of this is true of the universal church, but practically speaking is worked out and can only be worked out in the local church. So this is the point. Yes, those terms all apply to the universal church, but they they cannot be worked out in any other context other than the local church. So look again to Galatians chapter 6 and look at verse 10. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. This uh, gets to your point, Anne. Let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Especially those believers. But... Amongst those believers, especially within your household, it's like your family, right? Do good to your neighbor, but especially to your children. Yes, yeah. So the, the, uh, what Liz was saying is that the Lord leaves. He doesn't give us tremendous detail in how to work these things out because we have to work them out in real life and we need wisdom to do this. So there are lots of practical questions that come up. Those practical questions can be answered through wisdom, but we need to, we need to grant the larger point first. We need to, to grant the idea that our... Commitment to one another is a covenantal commitment. So when you are part of Cornerstone and commit to this church, you're you're engaging or you're you're coming into a relationship that is covenantal, and that has implications as we'll see. Okay, so let's go on because the church practices the the things that the church does imply that our relationship is covenant. So think of baptism. So Acts 2:41 and 47. Uh, peter is preaching and he's calling people to repent and to be baptized and so but they are added to the to the church they're added so in other words there is a there is a marking off here there is a recognition here and they're not just indiscriminately baptizing anyone they are baptizing those who have what what does peter say in verse 38 what must we do Repent. So they're baptizing those who have repented, right? Those who are confessing Christ. So they're not just baptizing indiscriminately. They're baptizing those who have confessed, who have repented and confessed, and they are affirming them. So baptism is the, is the church's act. The baptized, baptized baptism is done by the church in affirmation of their membership in the church. And so um, this, has been, this has been historically, if you go back and read, we've looked somewhat at like the London Baptist Confession, 1689 London Baptist Confession, or we've touched on the Westminster Confession. But if you were to go back before them, you understand, you read there, it's very clear that baptism and communion are church's acts and we're never to be separated away from the church and the reason being is because both of them are covenantal signs. Both of them mark something off. It's kind of like marriage where you, you, you don't have marriage just like with two individuals that decide that they want to be married and they just run off and say, we're married, right? There has to be some testimony to this. There's a witness to it. Even the state recognizes that. In saying you need to have witnesses. Like formal and ceremonial? Formal and ceremonial. Uh, the, the membership or the baptism? Yes. It's formal and ceremonial. Yeah. So it's a ceremony that we do, and it's formal in the sense that it's been, it's been given to us in the scriptures to do. Yeah, yeah. So Ethiopian eunuch, for example, if that really be the, the, I think the one. Well, but I kind of feel like even, maybe I'm mistaken in how I understand it, but even like at Pentecost, right? Yeah, but interestingly enough, all of those people it says are being added. Okay. So, So, and and the other thing we need to understand about Acts, Acts is so you don't have the church prior to Pentecost, in, in its inaugurated sense, right? You have, you have the, the pre-church in Israel, but you have the fulfillment of it in Acts. Christ sends the Holy Spirit, and that's when the church, as we know it, is inaugurated, right? So we need to understand that Acts is describing for us how the Lord is establishing his church. So this helps us understand the Ethiopian eunuch. There, there isn't a church when you have the Ethiopian eunuch, right? And so you can't baptize him into a local church because you don't have one, but the assumption is he's going to go plant one, and likely did. And then going forward, you have an understanding that the church has now been inaugurated and the church does this. Now, baptism was always done in the New Testament under apostolic authority. And as it went forward, it was done under um, appointed authority from the very beginning. So you can read, documents like the Didache written in 100s AD that was written in the practices of the church and it was very clear from the very beginning this is a church's act and it was they would actually limit baptism to um, those ordained. And that was carried out by the church for hundreds of years, actually millennia. Really, this didn't change until early 1900s or maybe middle 1900s. So to summarize, you would say the examples in Acts. Be careful with those. There's, a, there's an inaugural, exceptional right. sense to those. Right. Yeah, there's an inaugural, descriptive, historical sense. There are many things in Acts that are not prescriptive for us. They're descriptive of what was happening, much like the thief on the cross is another example that helps us to see that baptism is an essential for your salvation. And it describes something important to us, but that's not prescriptive to us. It doesn't tell us what to do. It describes what was done. So we need to be careful when we read any scripture. We need to read it in its context. We need to read it in its genre, and we need to understand what's being said there. Okay? So these things, baptism, communion, communion being connected with discipline, discipline, Um, Think of the term excommunication. What does excommunication mean? Put out. Um, Years ago, I was in Zambia. I was teaching the the class over there and asked uh, the students at the Bible college over in Zambia, what does excommunicate mean? And the answer was to stop communicating. (laughs) That sounds right. Okay, but that's not right. Um, Excommunicate, the word communicate comes from the word communicant and the church has understood communicant members to be those members who participate in the table they commune in the lord's supper uh tammy and i in zambia were actually uh having a, a lunch with some uh they were there just helping out they were from where that where those young men Where were they from uh somewhere south the two young men? No, they were from like Arkansas or somewhere. Anyway, they were part of a reformed church and somehow the catechism came up and uh, they, these guys knew their catechism. and But one of them made some reference to, well, you know, we're communicant members. And I'm like, really use that terminology. So what does that mean? So it means we, we participate in the table. So what does it mean to excommunicate then? remove them from the table. Whose act is discipline? Who does discipline? The church. Is that clear For Matthew 18? Tell the church. So excommunication historically in the church has always been t- tied to discipline and communion. Those two things go intimately together. In fact, if you think about the way the, his- the church has historically said these are the marks of the church, what they've said there's typically been two, maybe three, and it's been, one, the preaching of the gospel, that marks the church, preaching of the gospel, the appropriate or right practice of the ordinances or sacraments, baptism, communion, and maybe proper, properly appointed leadership. You know what's missing? Discipline. This is a mark of the church, but why didn't they include discipline as that which marked the church? Because it was included in communion. They, they understood discipline to be a part of sharing in the table, and that's, they understood that that was included in that. Now, most people today, if you read marks of the church, will separate out church discipline and say that's a mark, but we're doing that because we have lost touch. We have kind of lost the teaching of the church in reference to how communion and how church discipline are intimately tied together. And so we need to make that clear. But the point is, you can't do these things in the universal church, right? You can't practice these things in the universal church. This has to be done in the local church. And so when we baptize, we're saying something about our relationship with one another. We're saying we're in covenant relationship with one another. And baptism should never be separated away from that, nor should communion nor should discipline as an outplay of that. And then, of course, even benevolence is extended to those who are a part of a covenant community. Paul talks about putting the widow on a list. Well, who, whose list and how do they know whether the she should put in a list and who decides, right? has to be local church, yes. Right. Right. Yeah. So, if uh, Holiday is saying, when we, when we have to, not have to. Uh, that that sounds like. So we we grieve when we when we need to bring somebody before the church. But I just want to say, make sure that we understand that is an act of love, and so that's another another lesson. We're displaying love to that person. But in love, we don't tell everyone, right? We don't, like, tell the church in the sense that we go over to E-Free or we go to Trinity Press or we go to Japan. And we don't, like, put it out on social media. Say, hey, we we need to inform the church. So that, that tells us there has to be a defined community. Okay. And then church relationships indicate and necessitate this. The relationships between leaders and members, so hebrews thirteen seventeen for example, obey your leaders and submit to them as those who have watch over your souls. Peter talks in First Peter chapter five of the shepherds being given an allotment. They know who belongs to them, and so um, clearly hebrews thirteen seventeen I'm, I'm, I would say you ought not to apply that to yourself in reference to the pastor in Japan, right you should apply that to the leaders that God has given to you who have been appointed by your church, who have been affirmed in their qualifications by your church and whom you know. You know their names and they know your name. And then we have relationships between the church and its members. we talked about this in reference to church discipline. Listen to the church. We we gather. Uh, look at 1 Corinthians. You don't know, turn there now, but if you go through... 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 11, and you see all of the when you gather, 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 clearly talking about the local church, and that's in reference to the table. And then we have relationships among the members. We've talked about some of these things where we care for one another, we love one another, we're devoted to one another, we pray for one another, and we exercise benevolence toward one another. All of these things are done and must be done in the context of a local church and cannot be done in any significant sense in the universal church. So that that argues for membership, but it also argues that the membership that we have is covenant. We're committing to one another. We have duties to one another. Okay, so what are some implications if our relationship is covenantal? What are some implications if our relationships are covenantal? Yeah, so I'm putting myself in great danger if I am holding myself off from being part of a covenant community because I'm I'm putting myself in a position where the church can't faithfully shepherd me, especially in reference to when I walk away. Discipline we often think of as a negative. It's a tremendous blessing and gift. Praise God he's given us this so that if I wander I have a people that love me and will restore me or seek to. Okay, other implications. Yeah, Holiday was saying we prioritize the relationship with our local covenant community. Not to say that we don't participate and don't engage with others, but we prioritize the relationship with ours, our household. Much like you prioritize the relationships you have with your children. Doesn't mean you don't do things with other families, but you prioritize yours. So you pray especially for yours. You 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 practice hospitality especially with yours you do benevolence especially with yours other implications okay so here's a here's a few for you just to think about we are therefore uniquely joined together in a bond of love we cornerstone we are uniquely joined together in a bond of love we we if if we're in that bond of love we will devote one and ourselves to reconciliation and to peace so i won't walk away from you if things get difficult because i am bound to you it's like a husband and wife i won't walk away from my wife when things get tough why because i'm covenantally bound to her right we're covenantally bound to one another now remember the marriage covenant is different from the church covenant. The marriage covenant uh, never ends apart from death or severe violation with adultery or something like that. The church covenant, because we are a part of this uh, broader church and because churches send one another, there can be this movement within covenant relationship there. It's not, we're not Hotel California, right? Uh, we have shared duties toward each other. Um, and the celebration of baptism and communion take on special meaning for us. So when we observe baptism or when we participate in the Lord's Supper, these ought to have a unique and special meaning to us as a church. They have profound meaning beyond, but they ought to have special meaning to us because they are marks of our covenant belonging to one another. Okay. Okay. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll come back to some of this next week and clarify, maybe ask some more questions, and then we'll move on and talk about our relationships with one another governmentally or under authority in the, in the, as a nation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the gift of your word. Lord, we know that this subject is difficult primarily because uh, I know in my own, Lord, you know in my own experience, this has been a, had been a neglected subject for me and I pray, Lord, that you would help us to reclaim these things and to go back to it and lay hold of the, the church and its understanding of your word. And would we lay hold of your truths given to us in Scripture? And, Lord, would we submit ourselves to these things and love you and love one another as a result? Lord, I pray for this church that you would strengthen her and... Um, Allow us, Lord, to grow in our love for one another and in the display of the gospel both here and beyond. We pray in your name. Amen.